2: Uh, Wines. I find them extremely
4: helpful in helping me find something I'm looking
0: for. What are you waiting for? Head to either of their locations in Centennial or Highlands Ranch, and follow them on Facebook to stay up to date on their latest specials.
5: And go ball in the air, deep right center go. field.
0: Two run home run. Trevor Story. Way
5: back. Myers. Oh, watch it go oh, out.
3: left field take a good look you won't see it for long
5: Welcome into to the BSN Rockies podcast presented by The Green Solution. Visit any one of their 17 Colorado locations or browse their entire inventory online at mygreensolution.com. Reserve products online and pick up at your local TGS Express checkout. You'll be in and out in minutes. Use code BSN20 for 20% off your entire purchase. Now, let's jump into the show. So we've got a special treat for you today and I don't wanna delay it for too long, but I do wanna give this just a little bit of setup because it's going to be a two part episode and there's going to be a couple of abrupt times where I just jump in and and send us to commercial here because I had a lot of people from the press box that I enjoy talk to talking to every single day uh, that I wanted to get their thoughts on uh, this article I'd written, but a lot of other things inside of it, and then we got on a huge tangent about analytics and I uh, I couldn't really get control of the conversation, nor that I necessarily want to. Uh, it gets a little heated in here. I want everyone to know that immediately after this conversation, Manny Randawa and Tracy Wrinklesby went out to dinner together, so everything is fine. Uh, but they, they, it, this was really, really fun, honestly some of the most fun I've ever had doing a podcast for you guys uh, Thomas Harding drops by for a little bit unfortunately we didn't get Patrick Saunders but Kevin Henry, Tracy Ringlesby, Manny Rundawa, Ed Henderson uh, Patrick Lyons hopped on there for a minute you'll hear his voice I never really introduced him to the conversation but uh, a lot of stuff to talk about here so like I said it's going to be a two part episode with a couple of abrupt commercial breaks and, and the ending is just going to be in the middle of our conversation because I didn't want to stop us uh, too parts. Hopefully you'll enjoy both episodes as much as I did. Let's get right into it. All right, I am your host, Drew Creasman, and with me today, a truly all-star panel of guests. We're going to be talking a little later on with Tracy Ringlesby and Patrick Saunders. We're hoping that we can track down Thomas Harding and get him to join the conversation at some point. Just a few moments from now, we'll be joined by Kevin Henry of Rockspile, but sitting with me at this very moment, our good friend and and many-time... Uh, guest on the podcast, Manny Randawa of MLB.com and first time guest on the podcast, which is beyond me why that is true. Uh a truly a superstar of the press box. Well, it's because we always end up talking wrestling, I think is maybe the, the big point. But That's uh, it yeah. Uh, yeah, we're not
3: going WWE on this, no.
5: Okay. <laughs> we might get some in we there. might you know? yeah, why not? You yeah. know But uh, a long-time insider for 850 KOA and uh, a 26-year career as a scout in in baseball, Ed Henderson. Man, thanks so much for joining us Tom. This is going to be a great conversation because we've got a lot of different perspectives. And uh, I'm going to set it up here and try to not make it as self-serving as it legitimately is. Because I wrote a huge piece and now I'm going to make all of my friends in the press talk about it. Uh, But... I think it's one thing, it's been a very frustrating year for people that watch the Rockies, for people that cover the Rockies, but one thing that unites everybody is frustration over this thing. Whatever it is that is the topic of conversation today. I've started to call it the margin of error, the Coors Field Effect, the Coors Hangover Effect, it's been called before. The narrative that surrounds this team that sometimes makes it next to impossible for them to get a fair amount of recognition whether it's MVP voting Cy Young voting or as we've seen with the biggest example uh, spoiler number one on the list was Larry <laughs> Walker uh, at maybe not making it in the Hall of Fame we're all hoping he does I think everyone at this table is gonna be making a big push to hope that that happens uh, but so, so let's begin with the the big ones so that then we can go back and kind of look at the more nuanced because Todd Helton and Larry Walker get the most ink but and for you, is, is there a particular part of this Larry Walker puzzle, uh, and now as Helton has started to come into the Hall of Fame voting conversation, that, that just puzzles you as somebody who's seen a lot of baseball everywhere, but also particularly here? Yeah, I would
3: think uh, this is one of the stranger things that I've run into, to be honest with you, with uh, a gentleman who has, he had monster numbers when he was with Montreal. He comes here was an immediate impact player here. He's been been an immediate impact player everywhere he's played. Um, You know, Expos, Rockies, Cardinals. His numbers, and you guys know it much better than I do, his numbers now uh, stretch way past some of those individuals who are currently in the Hall of Fame. So I think what puzzles me more than anything else, is this constant nonsense, and I'm going to use the term crap, that surrounds the fact that if you played at Coors Field, we have to take points off for that. So here's my argument to it, very simply. You can't take points away when he's on the road. You can't take points away when he's playing for another ball club. So in the case of Larry Walker, if you measure the entire body of work, I think anybody who who knows anything at all about baseball and the value of a particular athlete to the game
5: has to admit that Walker belongs in the hall. End of story. Well, Manny is literally writing the book on not just that, I think that's a big part of it, but on the Blake Street Bombers and uh, has done as much work and research on any of this, probably, probably even more than me, really, uh, in, in terms of certainly in pr- putting the numbers together. I would presume. I would
1: presume. At least
5: uh, we we both spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, what do you can you put a little bit of uh, numbers to what Ed just yeah, said?
2: Yeah, Ed's and Ed's encapsulated it. It's um, Larry Walker is giving us the. Um, I I got it back and I to it. mean, the, the quintessential example of this, right? Of the whole core's bias, if you want to call it that. Um, because he's up for the Hall of Fame and because the numbers scream Hall of Famer and, uh, and I'm talking about park adjusted numbers. Um, you know, there are still people, that have been on, you know, you go on Twitter you'll find them pretty quick. Um, people who argue that the Coors Effect um, make somehow detracts from what Larry Walker did. Larry Walker's park adjusted numbers, Um, are better than many many Hall of Famers who are in there already.
5: Vladimir Guerrero. Vladimir
2: Guerrero is the kind of case study here because um, Pangraff wrote an article about this, Uh, many people have written about it, talked about it. If you vote Vladimir Guerrero, you can't not vote for Larry Walker because I think Guerrero played uh, 100 games more, or 150 games more. Mm -hmm. And Larry Walker, uh, his OPS plus, which is uh, on base plus slugging, adjusted for course and adjusted for every ballpark,
5: harshly, by the way. And and, and, and as you Drew and I have to, been into
2: that. Yeah, and as Drew will get to later, uh, potentially over over um, over penalizing the Rockies here was 141, so 41 percent better than the league average during his career. And uh, Vladimir Guerrero, who was inducted, what two years ago, um, 140. Uh, if you look at the wins above replacement, which is also park adjusted, um, and remember Larry Walker was a seven-time Gold Glove winner. Uh, Larry Walker's career—let's um, let's, let's start here. Uh, you know, I was talking to Larry uh, for the book, and, and he said, uh, "You know, you know, I, I don't know if I'll make it in, but it'd be cool to go in with Jeter, you know, because Derek Jeter is going to go in um, first ballot, no problem. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Larry Walker has a career." Uh, baseball Reference WAR uh, per 162, so if you divide it by 162 games, uh, uh, so it's, it's 5.9 per season. That's a that's a star superstar player every year. Every that's average 5.9. So six six a year, six WAR a year. That's superstar low Derek Jeter's in almost I want to say seven or eight hundred more games, something like that. 4.3. So he is giving you four wins a year, um, and Larry's giving you six. And Derek Jeter will be celebrated as he walks up to that podium this next summer, and Larry Walker will be scratching and clawing to get to seventy-five percent. So um, how it's exactly how it's, uh, it's, it's it's however you slice it or dice it, Larry Walker is a Hall of Famer. There's if you want to try to argue that he's not, that's a very very difficult argument to make. You can't make it number one. It's a very difficult one to defend. And so in any way, shape, or form. All you have is the raw numbers are inflated, of course. In 1997, 1997, he had a 1169 OPS at home. His OPS on the road was 1176. He had 49 home runs, of which 29 came on the road. This this guy was a special talent. I talked to a lot of people for this book. I saw to Tony LaRussa a couple days ago, I managed him in St. Louis. Um, and LaRussa said
4: he said he is the
2: best of the outstanding. Um, he and, and you know I talk, talked to uh, Tim Wallach, who uh, Larry says is his favorite teammate of all time, and he played with him in Montreal. And he said, and, and and he said, look, Wallach said everyone knows about the hitting, the, the gold gloves, and everything. Best base runner I ever saw. No No question, no contest, Um, and there's just more and more, of this. so many people have talked about this, Jim Leland, the Rockies put this out, Jim Leland managed Barry Bonds and said Larry Walker's the greatest player I've ever seen, I mean, if you're going to argue that that Larry Walker's not a Hall of Famer, you've got a lot to go up against based on all of that, so um, we'll probably get into more of it, but um, the numbers scream it, and if you saw him play, that screams it too.
5: Well, and I, I think one of the reasons why I, I put this all together was because we see a lot of the same elements of the Walker case and all of these other things that have happened. And I think when you put them all together, you, th- this pattern emerges because you can start to justify one thing or the other. It's it's hard to justify all of them, right? So Kevin has joined us now from Rock Spot. We're very excited to have you, Kev. Um before we, if, if there's anything else you want to throw in on the Walker thing, or is there any other particular case to maybe jump us into some others where you go, hey, if not Walker, then what about this guy?
1: Yeah, you know, I, all the stuff that I've read from Manny, and I mean, you talk about champion for, for Walker. I mean, I, I hope that when he gets in and when he gets in, that it's recognized how much Manny's done to really push that. Now, I've seen so many people on the Twitterverse I've been on that, too. That's been long time things I've seen it's it's been a down season you know all that But seeing how Walker has been celebrated now I think that it's amazing to see the the groundswell he's starting to get and obviously there's still a little ways to go and lot to push. but the names are speaking I appreciate
2: crap. that Kevin yeah um, I think it's more it's more really the, the egregious nature of him not being in nine years ago um, and the fact that he's down this 10th year you just look at the make the Jeter comparison and it's it's just Stark is clear. You know, he's going in, no problem. Larry Walker's going to struggle, right? So that that whole thing is what kind of makes you passionate about, you know, I'm not a Rockies fan. I didn't grow up a Rockies fan. But Larry Walker is an absolute Hall of Famer, and for him not to get in
1: would be a Travis. I think that's what pushes this whole thing. And Yankee Stadium will never get the brunt of the cooler stakes. Right. <laughs> I mean, I go back to that article that you wrote about the two months. Yankee Stadium,
2: God forbid, you ever say anything bad about that stadium. Yeah, just, and what Kevin's referring to is that Yankee Stadium it took an article from a couple of years ago basically taking a percentage of home runs in every ballpark that were quote-unquote cheap based on stat cast. So not barreled, not hit solidly. And um, curiosity began obviously with Coors and also Wrigley because of the win. And it turned out that uh, Coors was ninth on that list. Um, number two was Yankee Stadium. Number one, Houston with the Crawford boxes.
3: Let me jump in, too, if I may, Drew, and and add a a scout perspective to this. I probably, in the time that I've been scouting here in Colorado and in the time I've been covering the Rockies, probably seen, I'm going to say, in excess of 1,000 Major League games. I have no idea where the number is. There's two guys in, in my mind that stand out immediately in terms of their overall baseball instincts. One of them is the third baseman we have playing here now, sure. and Nolan Arenado. And the other one is Larry Walker. And this is with all due respect to Helton, Galarraga, everybody else that's come along. You know, the, the Blake Street Bombers, Castilla, Burks, all of them. And I know we're going to talk more about some of those guys a little later. But i got to tell you, when I look at a guy and I can just see that in every facet of his game, he gets it. You talked about the gold glove and his base running. I saw him. I was here watching games when guys would try to stretch a, a single into a double or a guy would take off from second thinking he could get to third and Walker would just gun him down. They did it once. They didn't do it again. One time and that was it. It was like lesson lesson learned. He terrific baseball instincts and to Echo what what all three of you gentlemen have said already. It's an absolute travesty that he's not in now. But it's it's going to be even worse if he doesn't get in soon, and and you go the route of the veterans committee and having to go through all that process. Walker belongs. That's it, plain and simple. End of story.
5: Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that we're I I think we started to touch on there, Manny, in the conversation too is, and Ed said, well, okay, well, how can you hold what he did on the road against him, right? Well, fifth on my list of of the most egregious moments was a a weird one, because it was in 2016, Charlie Blackman came in 26th for MVP. And I don't know that he should have been National League MVP that year, but that was the year. Now, we we all got to be honest with this. Charlie's had some splits. In his yeah, career.
1: Sure.
2: That's uh, what makes it so fascinating is that some years he'll hit better on the road, some years he'll hit. I mean, the splits are terrible, terrible on the, for the road part, and it's like, it's just kind of back and forth.
5: So in 2016, so we all know, he hit 324 overall on base 381, slugged 552. On the road, he hit 313 on base 363, so very close, a little bit less, but very close, and still obviously very good. And he slugged more on the road at 563 over his 552 mark at Coors Field, which makes you wonder, first of all, how is that even possible? But second of all, how this really doesn't extend both ways. And this road problem is one of the biggest things that hasn't been understood. This Rockies being on a a disadvantage when they go out to hit on the road. There are very few guys in history who have ever put up 313 on the road or, or slugged better on the road. And, and the OPS Plus and WRC Plus and stuff aren't giving you credit for that. So And Nolan's come up against this a couple of times, too. Uh, I was wondering if you guys had any other thoughts about the road-hitting element of this whole thing.
1: To me, it's funny that if I remember right, earlier this year they they highlighted the Dodgers and when they left Coors Field and what happened to them. Yeah. Yes, you know, and all, and it was like uh, it was the only LA, LA I was at late times. The LA LA. And all of a sudden, it was like that they just discovered you know nuclear fusion. It was like oh my god! <laughs> and then I remember you saying on Twitter, you know. Imagine doing this all the time. 81 times a year, yeah. So I'm glad that, I, I wish other markets, you know, I would love to see the Mets after they leave here next week and wherever they're going, what happens to them. You know, I would love to see teams in major markets start looking at what really happens. Help get some of the word out there that yeah, the Rockies are at a because they do this all the time. And that. That's
2: absolutely correct. Right. And that's where that's where you go first. You look at the physical drain on the body of going from here down to sea level and then spending seven or eight days on the road, maybe ten days on the road, and then coming back and you, you do that a dozen times a year on road trips. And if you look at, if you go throughout uh, Rockies history, take all 26 seasons, find find one, you'll find one season that the Rockies were, were 500 or better, and that was last year. Yeah. And look, think about how many great players have come through here. Great hitters have come through here, in particular. And, you, and you, if you're telling me that there was one season that there were 500, 500 on the road, and if you look at uh, their actual individual stats, you'll find, Virtually no one. I mean, Walker's an exception, you know. Charlie's an exception. Nolan's an exception. But virtually nobody, um, other than this, these kind of like star, superstar caliber players, were able to hit well on the road. And Gerardo
5: Parra, for some yeah, reason. Gerardo Parra is always the silly reason. Yeah, He's a baby shark guy. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, so what I'm saying is, it's not personnel, right? You can go through two generations, basically, right? Actually, that's more like three generations Rock of Rockies, right? Uh, and they all just hit poorly on the road. That means there's something else, there's an external factor, and that's, that's got to be the altitude. Um, so, and like you said, Drew, they, they don't get credit for that part. They only get the, the, the traction for that, and they get they get dinged for here. So, you know, what Charlie Blackman did in 2016, slugging better on the road, 926 OPS on the road, what Walker did in 97, what Castilla did in 97, 98, um, over 800 OPS both years on the road. Um, It's phenomenal. We don't even know. The science, at some point somebody's going to start giving us more of the science behind this, but when we find out, we are going to absolutely, our jaws, we'll have to pick up our jaws off the floor at what these guys have done.
5: And on that day, we will all celebrate with a Breckenridge Brew, the official beer of BSN Denver. We will be very excited about the fact that somebody has come along and made some sense of all of this. And we will toast with Vanilla Porter or with Oatmeal Stout, with Avalanche Amber, of course, with Strawberry Sky, the Agave Wheat. I always leave out the Agave Wheat, and I'm not sure why. It's one I have often. I've sort of switched over to the Strawberry Sky for this summer, but a nice, solid wheat beer, if that's what you're into. You can't go wrong with a nice beer from Breckenridge Brewery. So make sure you head over to our BSN Denver events calendar. See when the next watch party is going to be. See when the next time is. You're going to be able to find yourself into a nice six-pack or 12-pack if you're having a nice weekend of Breckenridge Brew. Hey, we got to take a quick break. We'll come back on the other side of it and get Ed's response to what Manny just had to say.
0: Are you in search of natural relief from your daily stresses Well, Strava Craft Coffee is a CBD-rich, hemp-oil-infused coffee that is non-psychoactive, helps reduce pain naturally, keeps those coffee jitters away, and so much more.
2: I started drinking it because I have degenerative arthritis and I would prefer to drink coffee that has natural ingredients in it for healing. And this coffee treats the inflammatory process that happens from having degenerative arthritis.
0: That was Robin. She's been drinking Strava Craft Coffee every day for months now and she is so happy with the results.
2: I would recommend it to America. To everyone because it is a fantastic product it delivers it does what it says it's going to do and it's amazing
0: put your body back in balance with Strava Craft Coffee and see how good you feel order online today and use promo code BSN2018 for 20% off that's BSN2018
5: Hey, if you're like me and you're trying to figure out how to be a mature, refined adult, or if you just really like wine, you have to check out my friends over at Weinster. Weinster is an innovative online direct-to-consumer wine club connecting wine drinkers with more than 110 of the best wineries in America today. What makes Winester special is that the majority of the wineries they work with are too small to attract the attention of retailers, meaning not only are you getting access to some delicious and hard-to-find wines, you're also getting supporting real people making real wine, not one of the few large corporations producing most of the wines available in stores. With Winester, all you have to do is sit back and relax as they curate a hand-picked shipment from the small from the best small wine producers in the US. Then, when you fall in love with a couple of wines as a club member, you can have them sent right back to your door with no shipping costs. We especially love Weinster here because it was founded by three CU Boulder alums. So sign up today with the code BSN25 to get $25 off your first shipment of wine and start being a real grown-up. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R. You know,
3: one component to it, guys, too, and it, it, Manny, you alluded to it, you know the fact that hitting at altitude, pitching at altitude—that comes into conversations all the time, as we know. What's What's interesting to me, and I've I've watched games both here and at sea level. One big factor here, as we know, pitchers will tend to to stay away from the off speed pitch. They'll tend to stay away from curveballs at Coors Field. So for these guys who who get a steady diet of not seeing those pitches much here. Then to be able to go on the road and perform and and have it just flip the switch and they're successful. That to me is something even more amazing because you know it, during the course of a season, you know, these guys are working on their hitting every day in the cage during VP and so forth. But to be able to go out and, and execute on the road and at Coors field, but in particular on the road where they see a lot of fastballs here and, and it, it's velocity, velocity, velocity that gets emphasized here. Pitching inside, coming inside on them with fastballs, not seeing much in way of sliders and curves all that much here. That really, to me, is a very telling factor.
5: Yeah.
2: Absolutely. The, the break on pitches, I mean, that's the other factor. It's a dual nature thing. I mean, you see one guy here and then you go and play that team at home the next week, his breaking ball is, is all of a sudden wicked. And it was flat here. That's it's as so simple as that.
1: You know, Dave Maguire was like, talking the other day about how they're throwing more curveballs down in batting practice the first game of the road trip. Yeah. you know, just to get them back in that psychology of, you know, like I said, heavy heavy on the curves. Dante would break out an
2: actual pitching machine to, to, to simulate uh, the break on pitches. You know, and um, he did that both I think as a player and he did that when he's being coaching. because he's like that's the main thing is that you got to figure out the break. Uh, you got to get used to it real
5: quick. So, you brought a, a name into the conversation that allows me to bring a word into the conversation because Dante Bichette and Vinny Castilla, I think, are the biggest victims of not recognizing how hard it is to be consistent. What I found is like Dante Bichette had one phenomenal year in his career. I could have made this about him not being MVP in 95, but really, when you look at it, that was kind of a by far the best year of his career. Yeah. Every other year, though, he's a one hundred and ten WRC plus guy, OPS plus whatever. He's hitting two hundred and ninety to two to three hundred and ten every year, no matter where he played. Yeah. Vinny Castilla had five straight seasons of hitting at least three hundred and twenty-five home runs. And Manny, you were the one who pointed out to me he had back-to-back years he actually put up the exact same line, or yeah, what was it? Because, um, yeah, so you can, but but it was back to, it was ninety-six and or ninety-seven
2: and ninety-eight, or I should say ninety-six and ninety-seven. He was. 3.04 batting average, 340, oh, 40, oops, sorry. Oh. 343, uh, 3.43 slug, or 3.04 oh, 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 oh. batting average, and 40 home runs at 113 oh, RBS. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which is crazy.
5: And so you... And got got to see some of this stuff. I mean, I was watching. I was a, I was a kid. Let's <laughs> be. I was. I you know. I was just like, hey, is, Dante What are you saying? Every time Sledgehammer hit, I got excited. Yeah. Oh yeah. Every time Crazy Train hit, I got excited. I remember what Vinny Castilla's walk up music was. I'm sure it was fantastic. But Castilla and Bichette really do seem to be the guys people look back on and go, ah, oh, we thought they were good in the '90s, but that was just Coors Field. And when you look back on it, it's like. Not even a little bit. They were too consistent to be products of the most volatile environment in baseball.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think those were guys that, you know, they were the Blake Street Bombers, but they were doing a hell of a lot on the road, too. And we saw what they were capable of. Vinny goes to Atlanta. You saw Dante with a career in other locations as well. Those two guys were always impactful players no matter where they were. So... Again, we, we get back into that discussion of the Coors Field effect. You know, people forget. These guys played with other ball clubs. They played half of the season on the road. It just, it, 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 to me, is a, is an absolute travesty that that factors in so much in the minds of the people who make these decisions. And when, when Manny was making the point earlier about the numbers contrast between Jeter and Walker... You listen to that, and you think to yourself, "Well, is it is it because is it because of where um, you know Jeter played? Is it because of where Larry played? I think it is. I mean, not to take anything away from Derek Jeter for God's sake, but I mean, he's a phenomenal was a phenomenal player in the game. But the bottom line is, okay, if you're going to give Jeter and you're going to give that East Coast um, grouping the benefit." That's fine, but give these guys the benefit too for the number of games they played on the road,
1: especially on the road. But yeah. What if Derek Jeter played in Seattle? You know, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a really interesting thing because you know, A. Rod, we knew of him, but all of a sudden he blew up whatever the Texas and of course the New York thing. Right. So it's it's absolutely true that it had a lot to do with. It. And I will tell you, you know. I, I grew up outside Colorado, came here late, you know, got here as quick as I could. But I remember covering the Tulsa Drillers whenever they were in the double A franchise. And one of the questions that was always asked and Nolan and everybody else who came up through there was, Man, won't it be great to hit a coolers field? Because the ball just flies there. So we even had the bias back then, you know, just going, Oh man, when they get the course they're gonna hit hundred and twenty home runs, you know. So we were perpetuating that a little bit just covering the minor leagues. Wanna right. be a great run.
2: Yeah, I mean, with, with Dante and... We're still on Dante and
5: Vinny. Dante I and Benny. I went to get some something
2: to eat, so... <laughs> I'm chewing. Don't worry about it. Right, or I hope I'm clear. So. Tracy Ringlesby has joined us here, too. Yeah, so Tracy's joined. Um, and he, you, you got it. When we get to Walker again, you got it. <laughs> you gotta ask him about the George Brett story. It's tremendous. Um, but with, with Dante and Benny, absolutely. Those two guys, I think, are, are looked at, especially Pichette, as, so like, the... the, the poster children poster you know of, of uh, Ronnie sluggers who came here and, and they were course creations they became what they became because that I hate Dante, that phrase so much yeah, course, course creations. creations Dante Dante was a part-time guy um, and by the way Tracy Tracy was there for all of this Rocky Mountain news so you know he's got far more uh, in the way of uh, you know information and Stories on this, but in depth on this. But Dante played for the, uh, you know, he was drafted by the Angels. He was a very raw player. He was, um, you know, his, his parents supported baseball, his baseball, but they weren't like into it, you know. So, you know, he just, you know, the reason he started playing baseball because he saw Reggie, Reggie Jackson hit a home run in Game Seven of the 1974 World Series, and it was just because the TV was on, on NBC, and. He, his mom told him, "Oh, that's baseball. They get paid to do that." And he said, "They get paid to do that." <laughs> okay. And then that was his goal for the rest of his, you know, the rest of his, uh, you know, uh, adolescence was mm-hmm. to get there. You know, so he was very raw, and he basically gripped and ripped. That was his thing. Basically, what people think of him as, that's what he was when he was coming up, right? When he was in high school. He, after high school, he wasn't. And I'll tell a story that's going to be in the book. In the book, after high school, he didn't know what to do. You know, he, he just kind of sitting sit around a little bit, trying to think about what to do next. Hondo Wilkes, who was a, a youth coach of his, and he was always coaching him, helping him out all throughout his youth and up to high school, took him to um, uh, took him to the to Palm Beach Junior College, where Frank Cacciatore was the the uh, coach, and he middle up becoming uh, I think a minor league manager, in various places, and maybe a scout too, but. He told, He um, they asked. You know. He said, "This guy wants to try out." You know. He just graduated from high school. You know. and the catcher, Tori, said, "I don't. Uh, I don't need anything but a catcher now because I've, you know, I've uh, the tryouts were yesterday. You missed it. And Dante never having caught in his life. And, and, and Hondo standing next to him, saying, yeah, he's a catcher.' And uh, so he said yeah. like, right, come in, Come here at 30 tomorrow morning to run. And if you're here, we'll give you a shot.' So he did that. That afternoon, they played a scrimmage. He yeah. caught. He was behind the plate. Awful. Um, as you'd expect, sure. It was terrible. It was just, it was, it was, it was very bad. Um, but that's what you would expect. But when he got to the plate, he roped the ball in the left field for uh, an out in his first at bat, and then he hit one over the light tower onto the racquetball courts in his second at bat off a guy who ended up getting drafted in the major leagues. The catcher Tori says, "Well, you're not a catcher, but we'll keep you." <laughs> and so from then on, that's when the uh, the Angels started looking at him and. Uh, but what I, what the point is, is that he was very raw, but then he became a student of the game. He, he, he read the science of hitting by Ted Williams every single year over and over again um, prior to the season. and he was, a, he, was, he was he was a student of the game to the nth degree. Um, and that's why if you, if you look at him, you know he valued other parts of the game other than just slugging, you know going the other way. Singling the other way, his two-strike approach is what he prided himself on. So, there's much more to Dante Bichette than that. Uh, and Vinny Castilla, I'll just give you a stat for the, for, for for him. He's a dead, dead red basketball hitter. Can't sneak cheese past the rat is what everybody would say um, about his about how he could hit a basketball. All three home runs he hit in the 1995 Division Series were Braves pitching. Uh, guys like Smoltz and him here in this building in game, uh, game 1 uh, off Maddox. All breaking balls. All breaking balls. So, I mean, these guys are not one-dimensional by
5: any means. Trace, you got some uh, Dante Bichette and Vinny Castilla for us?
4: Well, I just, you know, I, I guess because I grew up in Wyoming, and so I watched minor league baseball here, and, and I remember when I was with United Press International down here in the 70s, uh, the teams that came through here. Somehow... Players like Dawson and Raines and Bryn Smith and Cromarty and Gary Carter, they all like developed playing at, playing at Mile High Stadium at altitude. And the, the one year they had the White Sox here, and Norm Babe was a manager, and Pete Vukovic was on the team, and they called, the, Babe called Vukin at the end of July. We, he was my running mate at that time. I said, they wanted to take you to the big leagues. He goes, I need a commitment from them. He said, what, that I can come back down, because I'm having fun here, and we're going to the playoffs. I want to be part of the team in Denver. (laughs) But, you know, Vukovic pitched here. Steve Dunning, who was a breaking ball, off-speed guy, won like 18 games here that year. So I mean, I think it becomes an excuse for people um, to justify their failure. Do you have to just, you know, when Bill Guyvette was here, you couldn't throw a curveball. (laughs) It was banned in the organization. So I saw Burt Hooten one day, he was a pitching coach at the time with the Astros, and I said, uh, where did you learn the knuckle curve? I mean, I knew the answer to my question. Where did you learn the knuckle curve? He goes, oh, when I pitched for the Boulder Collegians for Baldy Rashadie, and uh, you know, th- th- they taught it to me, uh, the knuckle curve there. Well, I said, well, I thought you can't throw a curveball at altitude. He goes, who's stupid enough to believe that? <laughs> I said, well, Bus Campbell isn't—that's for sure. Because he teaches everybody, and he's the one that taught you. And he said, he said, he goes, you know, you have to change your release point because you're not going to get as much break. But you don't need two feet. You just you can do it with with 18 inches, as long as you make sure that you have a lower release point with it. He said, Tracy, I pitched at Dodger Stadium, and every time I pitched, I had to make adjustments based on how I felt. That's what pitching is about. So I think. You know, sometimes we get a little carried away with uh, looking for excuses for failure at the big league level because guys don't want to admit that maybe they had a bad night or they were overmatched. I mean, if you go back and you look at Mike Hampton, his first two and a half months in Colorado, he was 9-2 and with a two ninety eight ERA. Yeah. I don't think he won nine games the rest of the time he was here. Yeah. You know, but... And, and I asked him about that when he was a bullpen coach in Seattle. We were talking about it. We were talking about the pressures um, that you face when you go someplace as a big-time free agent because they'd gotten the second baseman from the Yankees at that time. And, and he said, you know, I let it get to me in Colorado. I said, what? He goes, well, I wasn't getting as much sink on, on my sinker. I didn't have the break on my breaking ball. And so I started trying to do things instead of just worrying about winning. You know, and that's the bottom line, is worry about winning. And, and I really think, no one will ever admit it, but you know, they don't have as many distance runners trained at this altitude anymore, because they found out, Wyoming, like, they have a high altitude training uh, thing in their new indoor practice facility there, where you can have up to seven guys in there, and you can train at any level of elevation you want, because particularly for the distance runners and stuff, they have trouble when they go to a lower elevation because the air is heavier and it's not as thin. And they have found out that it's a it's a wives' tale to say that well you need to go to high altitude to train for conditioning purposes because you then have the negative effect and it takes a while. But you don't have the effect of altitude for over 24 hours, and then it's more dehydration than it yeah. anything else. Rocky Long, who's now at San Diego State, he was at New Mexico, he used to be an assistant coach at Wyoming. He, and it, so he's been in the conference ever since he's left. His team's never arrived in Laramie before midnight. On the, 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 they're going to pitch, it's like after midnight, the day that they're going to play in Laramie, because he wants to be out of there in 24 hours. Yeah. And he's had great success as a visiting, visiting coach up there. One time he got there at 5 in the morning because it was like blizzarding, and he kept having to circle, and they had a noon kickoff it's when Joe Glenn was there and Vaughn gets the ball the first time down and they go the distance and they're up 7 or nothing it's like this is going to be great it was a miserable day in fact Pistol Pete was on one of those plastic bob splits ESPN showed it about nine times in the upper deck in the upper deck
5: they beat him
4: 42 deck yeah New Mexico beat him 42 to 7 All
5: right. So you, you brought something up there, and we're not going to get Manny, and I suppose now that I'm on the team all riled up about the win stat, but I did have to include a record in my art. There was one I could not overlook, and, and it goes along with the conversation we're having. Jorge De La Rosa pitched 583.2 innings at Coors Field to a 438 ERA, but his record was 53-20 and 20 here. And I think part of that, and I'm going to throw out one more stat, and then I want to get everyone's opinions on what's going on here. Part of that may be also this. Here are some of the best pitchers. I just was looking for the best guys I can find and their careers at Coors Field. Clayton Kershaw, 133 innings pitched, 4.6 ERA. Madison Bumgarner, 100.2 innings pitched, a 4.56 ERA. Patrick Corbin, 61 innings pitched, a 6.20 ERA. Zach Greinke's probably handled it the best. Eight, uh, 83 innings pitched, a 4.01 ERA. That's the only one that's better than De La Rosa. You know where he is. Yeah, Zach Greinke <laughs> has <laughs> no <laughs> idea where he is. Any <laughs> time. Uh, Walker Bueller, 31.2 <laughs> innings pitched in his young career so far, has a 512 ERA here. Max Scherzer, who's the best pitcher in the world most of the time, has 26 <laughs> innings pitched here, 588 ERA at Coors Field. Steven Strasburg, 26 <laughs> innings pitched, a 622. Three ERA here at Ford They obviously haven't had, you know, one or two games. You come in, you get rocked. You watch it. You take a shower. You go somewhere else. Uh, they haven't had time to try to train and get used to it, or even give it much thought. But I don't know. Does that tell us anything, Kevin? What do you think? Uh, Great question, honestly. I don't know if it tells
1: us anything, honestly, because I think all the stuff that we know about sea level, going back to altitude and everything else, I know other teams don't prepare for that, like do, obviously. And, I, and like you said, a Scherzer isn't going to get that many opportunities that cooler. Sometimes he's going to get
5: scared. You know, I,
1: I I hate to say that a lot of people just do not struggle, but well, it's worse and, and I think there's a lot more to it than that. I certainly think that you, these teams aren't preparing, coming in as much. They get prepared mentally, but still I think that, that we talked about the curveball and everything else, and the perceptions are out there, and sometimes they can get to a game like
4: him, and they can oh, get to a no, I think they're intimidated by the perception, and then they also have the easy excuse for failure. And, sure. The easier you make, the easier it is for you to accept failure, and the easier it is for you to fail. Mm, yeah. Okay, and, and I think that that becomes a thing, and, you know, you don't necessarily have that badge of courage in I'm going to, I'm going to defeat this thing. Can There's we, too many pitchers that pitched here. They're, I mean, the Yankees had their farm system here. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have their farm system in a bad place for the pitchers and stuff. I mean, the excuses that people come up with, it, it's just, uh, I mean, it's not even two, 320 feet down the line at Yankee Stadium. Right. <laughs> and I mean, the
5: old the 314,
4: Kingdom, baby where the Mariners played in the Kingdom, it was 312. And in they fact, they had to get special clearance to open that ballpark because the Angels go in to play the first game ever there, and David Garcia was third base coach. And they're working out the day before, it's going to be the first game ever at the Kingdom. And he says, how come you have, says the groundskeeper, how come it says 321 on that sign down the line? I said, well, it's 321 to the outfield, that's minimum requirements, and that's how we built it. He goes, I'd say it's closer to 310 feet than 321. They get this big argument, so they get the tape measure out. It was 312 feet down the line. They had to scramble overnight to get permission from the league to play there, because they had just put that rule in that it had to be 321. Nobody seemed to think that that was a knock on Edgar Martinez. Right, you know? Right. And that was, it. I mean, pitchers hated that because not only did you have short fences there, but you had the astra turn. So the ball was, I mean, everything about it was a hitter's ballpark. What Tracy's
2: talking about here is exactly why the whole notion that Drew mentions in this article about baseball doesn't count here, because it's just Right. A joke or whatever.
5: That's the frustrating. That's
2: part. what Tracy just said. That's why it, it does count, and that's why it, it's not a joke. Because there have been ballparks throughout history. There's a Baker Bowl. There have been ballparks throughout history in which there have been extreme uh, advantages or disadvantages for hitters. Fenway you know, Park. Fenway I mean, Park. Um, right. AT and T. You know, a lot of people. Uh, you know, I. I, talk, I I talked to Ellison Burks, and he he had some of his best years of his career at age like 35, 36 in, in San Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> and he he played one year at ATT and then the year at Open. I'm like, is it true, man? It's, it's so hard to get there, and so. And he said, we did we did fine. <laughs> thing, I didn't just Barry, I, Barry, I, I Barry didn't have a Barry problem. Barry <laughs> and so what i what I mean to say is, somewhat it depends on your hitter. Yeah. And the Giants can't get anybody. I think I think the Giants just had their first 20 home run, a single-season yeah. 20 home run hitter in like four years yeah. or five years. Yeah. It and doesn't you know, help the, the narrative that the Rockies have crazy. been
5: so much better in their history of getting good position players and have not been great at having good pitchers, and so that just makes the narrative, also worse. And also, I think, like, worse. said, he said, what,
2: why, have, why can't everybody just do that?
4: Why
2: can't right. everybody hit, hit 45 home runs here every year? Well,
4: so the, the two the parts... Like Finway, the other thing is like Fenway Park... Everybody thinks that it's a great hitter's park because of the monster. No, it's a great hitter's park because of right field. And and Oh yeah. Yeah, because there's so much room out there to get base hits. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you talk about a joke. What about that piece of crap they have in Houston? <laughs> yeah,
5: you missed yeah. Our, our minute made yeah. part yeah. we were talking earlier, but yeah. And they didn't
4: even build they got special permission to not build it to specification. Right. It's a joke. You know to you don't know what a joke it is? Juan Pierre hits a pop-up and slams his bat and breaks it. Now, one Pierre doesn't get upset. Yeah. He didn't realize it was his first career home run. First he went oppo at, at uh, Minute Maid Park and uh. hit it into the left field. He thought he'd popped out to the left fielder in a crucial situation.
3: You know, what we're... Tracy said it earlier and I think what what this whole conversation touches on is the word adjustments. Right? right. And when I hear people say, well, you, you can't pitch at Coors Field. Excuse me? We've had, in, in this environment here, in this city, we've had Roy Halliday, Brad Lidge, David Arzma, Kevin Gossman, some guys that have had some, you know, up Deuce and down. Gossage.
5: Deuce Gossage. absolutely. He's having a down here, but let's also not throw Kyle Freeland out. Kyle Freeland.
3: So, you know, when when people badmouth Coors Field or badmouth Denver, badmouth Colorado, and say you can't pitch there, I say that's utter nonsense. It's a matter of making adjustments. And as I tell people, and it, it, I, it sounds a little sarcastic and obvious, but I mean there's a winning pitcher in this ball car, ballpark every night, right? I mean, it isn't always a Rockies pitcher, but the, the guys who have had success here, and you've listed some of them, Drew,
5: they're the guys that figured out how to make the adjustments and come in here and, and be successful. John Gray's got a 346 ERA at Coors Field this year, which has given up 525 ERA this year, and and people talk like he's not a, a top-of-the-line type of guy or not pitching that way the and the, the one on the list who the name i haven't brought up yet that when i went back and was looking at game logs was 2010 ubaldo jimenez he threw 221.2 innings pitching for the rockies which we may not see that again 288 ERA, 214 strikeouts, a 161 ERA+. plus. He put up a 7.5 BWAR as a Rockies pitcher, somehow. Uh, he went 19-8 that year, uh, but he lost to Roy Halladay, who won 20 games. Also had an, an incredible season. But the, the thing that really blew me away was, oh, it's the first line here. 25 of the 33 that games that Ubaldo Jimenez threw at a game score of 50 or higher. In other words, he was a good to great ninety almost 90% of the time that year. The consistency thing uh, uh, about the situation is now we saw over the course of his career it didn't pan out for him, but the first four years of Ubaldo Jimenez and that, that was really the, the... It didn't
4: pan out for him in Cleveland either. Yeah. Right.
5: And, and he went to these other environments where theoretically it should be easier to pitch and he wasn't a better pitcher. He just didn't have it anymore, right? Um, the two, and we touched on this too, it's the automatic what does course field automatically do to you i don't think it automatically does anything and i use two hitters to try to talk about that in the article one was marco scudero in 2012 we all remember that i wonder if any of you have specific memories of that year because he played 95 games here hit 10 points under his career 20 points less of on base 20 points less of slugging he got, he got traded to the giants it exploded exploded yeah I mean, when, when you see his... was like the, the LCS MVP or something? Yeah, like that? He was. He yeah. was the NLCS MVP. And uh, this year we've seen it, I think, a little bit with Daniel Murphy, who has been under his career numbers across the board. There was an injury thing there, but he just... It doesn't, it didn't automatically... So there's the old, you know, add 20%. Course Field will add 20%. So in your mind, take off 20%. Where's the 20% for Scudero and Murphy?
1: Well let's remember when our Murphy was first signed, everybody's like, oh the gaps, of course. Oh he's gonna take such a danger. I was one of those yeah, people. Absolutely. Well like, yeah, we all were. It was like, oh, no brainer, you know? And to point buddy, that's baseball. You know, I mean it really is because it's not an automatic thing. If you're playing here your after games, it's not an automatic, you still gotta hit the baseball, you've still
5: gotta be on track, you still gotta do everything that you've gotta to do to be a good baseball player. The uh, the line in the Todd Helton section that I had, we were talking about places like so. So so this was number two on the list, and I I want to get everyone's thoughts on Todd Helton's year two thousand campaign. Where were you when? But we all know he was trying to hit four hundred going into that final month, right? And and it hadn't been done since Ted Williams in forty one. When you're chasing history like that, and you're talking about the mound has changed size. Guys used to play in the polo grounds, like. At what point can Coors, like you can't include Coors Field in that, right? But you just know if Todd had finished and hit 400, that said, oh yeah, he did it. But he did it at Coors Field. So thoughts on that? But also, just what do you remember from that season, Ed? Like that was
3: well, he I, hit 512
5: in oh, May. He, he was, he was <laughs>
3: phenomenal, and and I think I don't know how you guys will feel about this, but I'm just going to say it. I think if you took from that year and moved him to 1955, right? He's in the Hall of Fame now, no question about it. I mean, with the numbers he had, with the way he performed year in and year out, I I think that that, to me, was one of the most exciting, fun seasons of baseball to watch because of him, and I think even for people who weren't necessarily baseball fans, you can't ignore something like that. You know, it's like when you think back to 2007, 21 out of 22, you know? How, how often does something like
5: that happen? How often does something like 2000 and Elton happen? Yeah. He was hitting 395 going into September.
4: Oh, he had, yeah, he had a magnificent year and took advantage of, of wherever he was. And, you know, it's like, well, it's it's for a higher average at home. But most people play better at home. Yeah. Because they make adapt, they adapt to their environment and they play better there. Why do you think teams usually have better home records than they do road records?
5: Even in sports where the playing fields are exactly the same.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I
2: mean, and, and you know, when you go back to MVP voting, and, and this goes toward, to a lot of what you wrote. Um, you know, you kind of have to, you kind of have to adjust your um, the parameters in terms of what. Going back and thinking about what voters, the writers are thinking about, now. You know, They're Not looking at war. They're not really looking at advanced technology and all that stuff that we look at now to kind of say, which is why Larry Walker, for example, is getting more consideration. But um, so even, but even then, you go back to uh, the year two thousand, and, and, and for the sake of uh, of uh, putting it out there. Uh, Helton's Helton war was eight point nine. Eight point nine. Uh, and uh, the the winner that year was Jeff Kent of the Giants uh, and his uh, his 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 was seven point two. Um, I mean That's significantly I, mean, I think you've got to think about it this way. I mean Helton Helton had a higher value, added more value to his team than Barry Bonds did for his Mike Piazza did for his these are uh, Jeff Bagwell, you know, uh, Chipper Jones, these names. And he, you know, he finishes fifth, which is not even close. I mean, he should be it. second or third. If you, if you look at the, the raw numbers, and, you know, he, the raw numbers that they would have been looking at is 372, 463, 698, with 42 home runs, 147 on the ice, um, And the fact that we said he was hitting almost 400 going into the last uh, month of the season where he kind of dipped, it's, you know, you know again, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't look at that and, and, and base everything off that because uh, we have other numbers that are to, to be more precise and they give you a better idea of how much, you, how much value you brought. But if you're looking at those numbers, same with Bichette 95, 40 homers, led the league, led the league in hits, led the league in slugging. Um, his team got to the playoffs. So These are the things that they're looking at, right? And Barry Larkin won the MVP award that year. So um, it's it's there's a bias, it's clear, and even by the numbers that they would have been looking at then, yes. they are um, penalizing Rocky hitters uh, way too much. As in, we don't know how to quantify this yeah. yet. And, and, and even so we let's that, just kind even of. Even though now we do know how to quantify it, we're still penalizing Rocky hitters, right? Uh, maybe more than we should. But back then, it's probably more. Uh, uh, an issue
4: to penalize them because, like, it's like it's a big thing. They played the a course. I don't
5: know. Three seventy-two is probably not there's real. A,
4: there's a lot of difference between being player of the year and most valuable player. Yeah. If your team's not in the postseason, you're not the most valuable player because your value in baseball is if you get to October. So yeah, I, I would disagree with that point. Now, and that's why I think it's great that the players have their player of the year award, and that's that's where. Just a single individual great season, matters. but if you're good enough that you make your team finish third instead of fifth, you're not that valuable.
2: Well, you know, that's, that's a whole other discussion. I think we can could, we could go two or three hours on just what does MVP mean, um, and that's been had. Um, obviously, Tracy and
5: I disagree. All right, I'm going to have to cut the conversation off there, at least for now, for this part, of the first half. This episode of an all star panel conversation. Uh, We'll pick it up right there where we left off uh, with Ringlesby and Manny mostly trying to define MVPs and getting into the analytics versus old school debate. Ed jumps in with some really good stuff. Patrick Lyons joins the conversation. We keep it going. We absolutely did not stop there but i have got to stop it there so that we can have this be a reasonably sized file so i want to thank you all for listening into this one hope you uh, go right forward and listen to the next one I'm hoping to have them out very close to each other so you don't have to wait too much in between episodes. But I do have some editing to do. So thank you for listening. Make sure you're following us on social media, at BSN Rockies, at Drew Priesman, at Patrick D. Ryan, So you can give us a like, share, and subscribe on Facebook or whatever podcast app you happen to be using. Make sure you swing over to bsndenvermarchs.com. And, of course, continue to be absolutely awesome. I will continue to be absolutely Drew Priesman. And until next time... We'll see. Hey, as you guys may or may not know, taking care of your teeth is pretty important. Our friends at Green Mountain Dental Group are giving away a free Sonicare toothbrush when you schedule a cleaning x ray or exam. That's right. You simply have to take care of your teeth for Green Mountain Dental to hand over a free Sonicare. Check them out today online or call 303 988 0711
4: to schedule your appointment.